Well, that was a good video, huh? <clears throat> Interesting. And it is the world in which we live where those, we wrestle with those questions. And you may be wondering why uh, I brought Brian up here with me. Um, he is, well, one, my son. Two, he is the assistant chaplain of the Boy Scout troop. And I asked if he would read our scripture for the day. And so we're going to start uh, the message with the reading of the scripture. So I'd ask if you would stand uh, with us. And Brian is going to read this microphone right here. I'll, I'll hold it for you. And we're in uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. You can do that every week. <clears throat> so we launched a series last week on the Apostles' Creed, and we were calling the series, I Believe. That's the first statement in the Apostles' Creed, and we looked last week, uh, and, and we thought about what, it, what does it mean when we say, I believe, and when we say, I believe, in the context of the Apostles' Creed, it means that I'm pledging my life to, uh, to do something, not just words that we speak. Those are nice. Uh, scriptures we read, the faith that we affirm in the, the Apostles' Creed, I, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's uh, one thing to say. It's, a, it's another thing to live it out in our life. And so I think it's appropriate that we have our scouts here today, and, and they uh, recited their law in their oath, and <clears throat> they're in uniform, and uh, part of what makes them a scout isn't the words that they spoke or the uniform that they wear. What makes them a scout is that when they are here and, and when they leave this place, that everything that they said they do, everything that they said they believed in, they go out and put into practice in the world. That's what makes them a scout. It's not about the patches or the badges or that they gather. That's all part of it. But what really makes them a scout is that the words that they speak filter down into the very people that they are becoming. And as a Christian people, it's the same thing. We profess the Apostles' Creed. It's our confession of faith, which tells us into the ongoing story of God. Uh, it provides a framework or, or boundaries, if you will, uh, for us to think about and, and practice our faith. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's, it's meant to become our way of life. And, and so we, we started talking last week about, I believe. What does that mean? What is the Apostles' Creed? Where did it come from? This week, we want to get further into that first statement, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Maker, of heaven and earth. And I, I, uh, I chose that video because I run into that quite often. 
people will say, do you really believe in God? And that's the question I think that's out there. Do you believe in God? Uh, Pew Research published a study, I think it was just past November, and they were asking people about belief in God, and 89% of people say that, they're, that they believe in God or in a, some sort of higher power, 89%. Um, 74% of those people are, would say that they are absolutely certain. Um, what is a little bit troubling is a study that was the same study, same questions, published in 2007, there's a marked downturn in the number of people who say that they believe in God or, or some sort of higher power. And the video that we watched gives us a helpful picture to understand or hear from people who wrestle with that question. Um, there's a group of people they, that, are, that say that there is no God and they may label themselves as atheists. And for an, for an atheist who says there is no God, the issue is settled for them. They are absolutely certain there's no God. And there's another group of people that, that we heard from in the video that they're wrestling with that idea. They're, they're not quite certain. Well, maybe. If you could prove it to me, then may, maybe I would believe or assent to the fact that, that there is a God but I'm not sure that there's enough information, information for me to actually step out on, the, on that limb and say, yes, I, I believe in God. I could be persuaded in either direction. And so, you know, we have to wrestle with that question. Is, is there a God? It's one of the, the great questions of life. One, we, there's a category of existential questions like, why am I here? What purpose do I serve? Why do I exist? Is there a God? And it's natural for, for humans to think uh, of those questions and, and wonder about those things. And uh, so how do you go about finding an answer to those questions? And that's what this series, I hope, helps us think through. Um, why should I choose to believe in God, or why might I choose to believe in God? And, and if I do, what difference would that make for my life? And I'll be honest, it's a question I can't fully answer in the context of the time we have this morning. Um, but I think probably since you're in a church, you may know what my answer is, uh, whether or not I believe if there is a God or not. Um, but I think I want to help us think through this, uh, what it might mean to say, I believe in God. And, and if you're here and you're just really not sure about God, I, I hope that what we talk about may be of some help to you in some way. And I would say, uh, I will, I will I will make a statement on behalf of our church. This is a good place for you to explore questions like that. That you'll not find this to be a place of, of judgment, but a place that is willing to partner with you in thinking through some of these questions that you might have. Uh, I hear in that video that people want proof. 
that God exists. And that would be nice if, if there was just some you know, magical proof that we could point to. And, and throughout the years, you know, we've made attempts at trying to prove the existence of God or come up with arguments that we say are, are proofs. And you know, a couple of them, there's, a, there's what's called a cosmological argument. And, and it, it, it's basically saying that, well, some being had to set everything in motion. Then there's the uh, one that's called the teleological argument. And, and, and this argument says that, well, there's someone uh, had to give purpose and order and intelligent design and direction to everything that exists. And there's an anthropological argument that, that kind of says at its core that, well, someone gave humans this built-in awareness that we, that we ought to do what's good, that we ought to do what is right. And then there's another one. It's called the ontological argument. Now, you don't have to remember any of these terms. You know, they won't hurt you. Um, you know that they are out there and exist, and, and you can explore them. I'd love to explore them with you in more depth at, at some point if you wanted to. The ontological argument says that someone gave us the ability to think about the greatest and the highest and, and the best things that we can conceive. You know, we turn to pages of Scripture. Paul says, Romans chapter 1, he says that it's obvious that God exists. He says, they will know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth, people have seen the sky, and through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Paul's saying that the reality of God's existence can be seen all around us. Paul is saying that he is as real as the sun gives us warmth or the rain that soaks the ground. It's, it, God is as real as the ground that we walk on. And yet, even with all of these attempts to explain, to, to prove, if you will, people doubt. People still have questions. People still wonder, well, is it, is it actually true? I picked John 1 as our text, our launching point, because I hear in, in this scripture the echo of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God. And when we hear the words, in the beginning, we, we know that we're entering into this place that is familiar, but still somewhat strange and, and maybe a bit nebulous for us. I mean, Genesis is uh, it's Hebrew poetry that, that is essentially saying that before anything else was, God is, is what it's telling us. In the beginning, God. And we read Genesis and and we recognize that it's a story about us, God's creative activity, making all things, about humans. And the story goes on that we're in creation and God's created order and 
and Adam and Eve are, are in the garden, and, and the serpent comes and, and tempts them. And when we read, when we read Genesis, we, we see ourselves in that story because it's an ongoing story. The serpent comes to all of us, tempting us to do what is wrong. And every time that we succumb to this temptation and do what is wrong, paradise is lost. Marriages start to fall apart. Arguments break out. Wars happen. So John is evoking all of these thoughts and this language that he uses to start out his gospel. In the beginning, the word already existed. Well, whatever else John is going to tell us, he wants us to see this book as the story of God and the world, and not just the story about one particular character in one particular time and place, but that the story goes on. And he uses this uh, word, he says, in the beginning, the word, the logos, already existed. And in the Old Testament, God regularly acts by means of his word, logos. What God says happens. He speaks things into existence. God's word is the one thing in the Old Testament that is viewed as something that will last and a question that is on the minds of people of faith, and it has been all the way back, is how can the one true God be both different from the world and active within the world? How can God be remote and holy and sort of, you know, out there and also be intimately present? with us. Now, some people, some Jewish folk, thought that God was personally involved and present with them in, in the temple. Uh, John used the word logos to describe Jesus as the one who not only revealed God, but was God himself. That Jesus was the one who came to earth to, to act in new ways within the creation. Now, for, for Jewish people, logos also meant the word of the Lord, the law, Torah. And so they, they viewed that because God had given him the law, his word, his logos, that his presence was with them in the law. Now, in Greek thought, similar time frame, the Logos was more abstract. The Logos was kind of a rational principle that guided the whole universe and made sense out of it all. It, was, it was, uh, made everything coherent. The, the word, the Logos, was uh, this abstract principle of rationality. And it lies deep within the whole of the cosmos and within every human being. So the Greek philosophers taught that to find true meaning in life, you just had to get in touch with this abstract principle, this, this word. 
And we hear in, we heard in the video, we watched it, that some people believe in both of those schools of thought. The Jewish believe God's presence in, in the word, the law, his presence in the temple. The Greek philosophers and, and people believe that eh, it's just something more abstract. In the video, we saw people who said, yes, I believe that, that God exists. I believe there is a God. And others who said, hmm, I don't know. I think that there is some greater force, some higher power, some spiritual being that's out there. So both positions were named in, in the video that we saw. Albert Einstein, he, was, uh, he wasn't convinced about God, but he could talk about God as a force that was behind everything, this force that caused everything to happen. And John, in the verses that we read, what John is saying is that the word, the Logos, God, is not some abstract principle. God is a person. Is Jesus, who now brings the possibility of new life to God's creation. And so there's a couple ways that we can approach this whole God conversation, this whole concept of, of God. And, and one way is that we can, we can name God as the force, the power, the source from which everything that exists derives its existence and depends on for its existence. God is almighty. We could name him as, as this force. And there's another way of approaching this line of thinking. And we can also say that God is also personal and relational and loving, that he is Father. And that's what we get to in the statement of our creed. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so you get the force, the almighty, the, the power, omnipotence of God partnered with this language of Father, and they come together in picturing him as creator of heaven and earth. You know, science and physics, they teach us a lot. Uh, and they teach us that there are these fundamental forces that are responsible for governing and, and shaping and, and sustaining the universe, most of which cannot be seen. And when I hear this, I have no argument with their work, their study, their discovery. But I personally I cannot help but thinking about the power and the influence and the presence of God Almighty in all of what they're discovering. What if we're talking about the same thing just using a different vocabulary? I don't think, I know that there's sometimes a gap that exists between people of faith and science. Partially because we don't understand lots of things, and so 
therefore we fear, we feel threatened that scientific discovery is somehow going to unravel our faith. But I'm one. I don't personally think that people of faith need to fear science. Instead of shredding our faith, maybe, maybe science might actually help us expand our faith. If, if God, if we, if we believe that God truly brought everything into existence and he carefully designed everything and all of its intricacies and, and, and that God is the one who is holding it all together, then I, my personal opinion is that when we, when we see what is discovered, that it, it takes us just deeper into the mystery of God. The biblical account of of creation. It's beautiful Hebrew poetry. It's not meant to be a science lesson. It's not, it's not a physics textbook. It was, it was largely written before the study of science was actually even really a thing. What we read in Genesis is an account of who created the universe. It names the force that set everything into motion. The Bible tells us why and who. I don't think it's designed to give us the how exactly it all came together. And unfortunately, the church throughout history has, has had kind of an embarrassing relationship with science. Because I think that people in, in good, in, in an honest attempt to make sense of it all, just misused scripture. Galileo comes to mind. He was a scientist, faithful believer. The church asked him, forced him to recant his discovery that the earth is not the center of the universe. And Galileo, he did, but he was said to... <laughs> He said to leave the room muttering that he didn't really mean it. He wrote to a friend. This is what he, this is what he wrote. He said, I, I believe the intention of the Holy Bible is to persuade us towards salvation, something science could never do. Only the Holy Spirit can move us. But I do not think we must believe that the same God who gave us our intellect would have us put it aside and not use it. Now, when we look at science and people of faith, uh, both groups, if you will, uh, believe that the universe was created ex nihilo. Have you heard that terminology before? Ex nihilo means out of nothing. That at some point, nothing existed and everything exploded out of something that was about the size of a pinhead. Some argue that it happened totally by chance. It was just a random act and boom, explosion. They call it the Big Bang. Uh, some people just think it was random. Christians, people of faith, say that it was God. God created. God spoke his word and creation happened. For me, if I'm thinking about those two options... It would take more faith for me to believe that it just happened randomly than it does to say that there is a creator. 
a designer, somebody who spoke it into existence. I mean, if, if I'm thinking about a bowl full of nothing, you give me a bowl full of nothing and you give me 13 billion years and you expect me to get to the point where we are here, I have, I have trouble with that. I scratch my head and go, really? Nothing to us? Are you kidding? Even scientists agree that life just springing forth on our planet is highly unlikely. A guy named, he, an astronomer named Fred Hoyle, he uses this particular analogy. He says that the probability of life just coming into existence on its own is no higher than imagining a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and after it passed, a fully assembled Boeing 747 appeared. The study of physics and astronomy and biology, they help us understand things. And, and I marvel at science and nature. There's, there's so many things that are so complex. I, mean, I, just, I remember this past fall, some of you boys were, were along for the hike. We, we hiked in from White Pass up to Dumbbell Lake. And, and out in the middle of nowhere, where there's no light pollution, when the sun went down... It didn't really get dark outside. It was dark, but you looked up and the sky was just filled with billions of stars. And you could see the arms of the Milky Way. And, and then I think about the, the Hubble telescope images that we can see and, and images that are maybe the size of a postage stamp that, that show multiple galaxies that are far away with billions of stars just in one postage stamp worth of the night sky. And then I think of the things that we can look at underneath a microscope, at the small, intricate level in, in the DNA structure and, and sequencing. And I think of passages like Psalm 19, where it says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. They speak without word, or they speak without sound, yet their message has gone throughout the earth. That creation just reverberates praise for God. And when we discover these things, I think that we are stepping in to God, not pulling away from Him. It makes me realize that the God that I sometimes want to condense down and package up and put in my pocket and carry around, it's far too small an understanding of God. God is, God is way bigger than I can even imagine. I mean, I remember in my younger days when I would hear that God was almighty, that God was omnipotent and all-powerful. You know, maybe you have wrestled with these kinds of questions, but, you know, okay, well, if God is almighty, can, can God make a square circle? Or another one that people sometimes bring up is, well, if God is, is almighty and all-powerful, can God make a rock that's so big that not even he could move it? And while there's maybe, you know, fun conversations that you could have bantering back and forth on whether or not, it totally misses the point. That's not what we are professing when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. God can do anything that he wants that is consistent with his nature. And when we profess that he is 
Almighty. That is what we are getting at, that God will act in powerful ways that creates and holds everything together, that he reigns supreme over all and in all. All right, well, there's, you know, the other way that we could talk about God is that God is not an impersonal, abstract reality, but he's personal. He names himself Yahweh. I am that I am. He is existence itself. He thinks, he reasons, he creates, he enjoys what he makes. In, in the creation account, in, in, in Genesis, when, when God created, it says, and he looked upon it and it was good. He loves, he feels, he has compassion. He defines what we call personhood, individuality and, and reason and relation. So we believe that God is a personal God who loves us dearly, that God's work in creation is an act of salvation and deliverance from the forces of of chaos, of darkness and, and water. And he created us so that he could give his love away, that God exists in a relationship himself and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God is love, and, and he wants to give this love away, and so he created us, and he longs for us to reciprocate his love by loving him back and, and by loving his creation and caring for and by loving and caring for other people. The creed proclaims that we believe in God the Father. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he, he teaches us to pray addressing God as Abba, Father. It was this special term of intimacy and affection, similar to Daddy or, or Papa. And this was not common for people of the time. The Pharisees would never, ever think that they could approach God and address him as Abba. God was to be, his name was to be revered and, and feared and set apart and high and lifted up. And, and addressing God as, as Abba would kind of be like wearing blue jeans to a black tie affair. It just wasn't done. And Jesus says, use the family title. Use the loving term of endearment. It's okay to address God as Abba, as Father. And certainly Jesus demonstrated a a respectful dependence on God. But he also knows an affectionate intimacy with God. And, And I think that he was teaching us that this is the kind of relationship that God desires with us. A relationship so personal that we can call the almighty creator of heaven and earth, we can call him dad. And I know that when we say father, some, for some of us that, that may come across as negative. Uh, fortunately, I grew up in a home with a, with a dad, an awesome dad. Well, I love dearly. But I know that that's not everybody's experience. What I would offer is that 
I think that we are wired, all of us, in the image of God. We are wired with this longing and yearning to know a father who would never abandon us or be abusive towards us. And the picture of God that Jesus gives us is one that's not oppressive. It's not abusive. It's not authoritarian. Rather, he is the good giver of gifts, and he wants what is best for us. He'll let us go off on our own way, and, but he's willing to welcome us back with open arms, even, even when we've sinned against him. This is the kind of father that, that, that Jesus was referring to when he encourages us to pray, Abba, Father, one who will never leave us or forsake us. And so we, we believe that God is both almighty and personal, Father, and, and there's, there's a natural tension that exists between the power or the transcendence of God and, and this personal closeness of, of God. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann, he says that omnipotence can be feared but can't be loved. And when you think about power itself on its own, power, just raw power can be cold, can sometimes be cruel, that it just lacks something. You may have had a a teacher or a boss who only wielded their power. And when you have a teacher or a boss who is only interested in throwing around authority and power, sometimes they're not liked very much. You might respect them for their position, but it's hard to like them because there's this cold, cruel front of, of power. But you may, on the other hand, if you've had a teacher whom you respect, who displays a caring and compassionate interest in your life, they're often admired and loved. And as we read scriptures, we notice that God, while he is all-powerful, he did not want to be known only in this way. So he relates to his people and de describes himself in very fatherly and motherly ways throughout the pages of, of Scripture. And in the opening line of the creed, we acknowledge that the one whom we call God is greater than, than we could ever imagine, but he's also the one who we can run to when we are afraid and overwhelmed. We believe in God the Father Almighty. In our own existence, we, if you are a parent, you will resonate with this. Um, we get a picture of this challenge, this tension that exists between authority or, and power and, and the personal closeness. We've, we want to be uh, an authority figure in our kids' lives but we also want to be loving and personal and a friend. And it's hard to navigate sometimes between the two. It's a challenge. As a dad, I don't want to be just the almighty one, although that has its advantages every so often. <laughs> I think that's true for God as well. Jesus gives us a picture of this kind of God in the prodigal son story. It's a parable about, I think it's really a parable more about the father figure. A loving father. A running father. It's in Luke chapter 15. You, you may have heard the story. If not, you can look it up a little bit later and, and, and read it. 
There was this father who loved his son more than life itself, and, but his son really preferred to be a self-made and person and, and indulge in worldly pleasures, and so he wanted his inheritance from his dad, and, and he, his dad granted it to him, and he took off with it and squandered it in worldly living. It came to a point where it didn't work for him anymore, ran out of cash found that his friends were only interested because he had means of existence, could pay for the party. He found himself, you know, just in the dumps, broken, rock bottom. Sometimes we use that terminology. And he thought, you know what, I could be a servant in my dad's house and I'd be, I'd be, I'd be more advantageous than where I am right now. So I'm going to go back, I'm going to beg to be a servant. So he goes home, and when he came home, his father had a choice. Some might burst out in anger. Some might demand an apology or, you know, rub your kid's nose in what they did and look at all the wrong you did. You've got to repay all of this. I gave you your inheritance, and you just blew it. You got to pay it back. That's, that's not how Jesus tells the story. Jesus says that the father had been waiting, longing, looking. And when he saw his son way off in the distance, he went running to meet his son. Not stand on the front porch with arms crossed, waiting till son was just steps in front of him. He took off running. Dignified men didn't run in those days. Open arms, loving embrace, lavish celebration. I, I've missed you so much. I love you so much. This is the nature of God that we profess when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the one who is so almighty that he bends down low and he whispers in our ear, you can call me dad. You know, at the end of the day, I can't prove the existence of God in any other way than by my own personal experience and by the hundreds of stories of people who have reported God's activity in their life to me. Business people who felt called by God to leave their career and pursue a life in ministry. Marriages that were on the brink of ripping apart, that were cold and lifeless, that are revived and healed and have become a place of warmth and love. People who find joy even in the middle of extreme adversity. People who report that, that at one time they had, that their heart had been so hard that there was absolutely no thought that they could ever forgive somebody for what they did to them whose hearts were softened and they were able to grant forgiveness and relationships were restored. I mean, personally, I believe 
in God because I'm alive. Because I can think, I can reason, I can love. I believe my very existence points to God, my creator, who is greater than I am. I believe in God because of moments I've had in my life, whether I've been praying or reading scripture or, or walking in nature when I've heard his voice. I believe in God because I've sensed his guidance and direction in my life. I believe in God because I can see him in his creation. I believe in God because I've felt the presence uh, of his comforting arms in dark times, like, like arms that were reaching around me and giving me a hug. I believe in God because I've experienced too many coincidences, coincidences to call them coincidences. My soul longs to do his will and to praise his name. And I feel most alive when I'm doing his will. What I sense him calling me to do. I believe in God. And in my faith in God, I find purpose and meaning and grace and hope. The first word the Apostles' Creed. Remember what it is? It's credo. It simply means, I believe. But it literally means, I give my heart to. I give my life to acting out the words of my confession. And my prayer is that my confession will become the reality upon which I live. And I invite you to do the same. People of God said, Amen.